Bullshit is everywhere. Bullshit is rampant. Bullshit. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. This is bullshit. <laughs> I should have added that. Lieutenant Daniels from The Wire. That's a bunch of bullshit. I should have added that into the theme. Uh, welcome back. Bullshit Filter, episode seven, I think. Uh, how are you? Me. Oh, my name's Cameron Riley. How are you, Ray Harris? Fine. Doing great. How are you? I'm good. You're excited about your upcoming trip to the land of Oz? I cannot wait. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I'm gonna. I, I think I'm going to do the, the test of manhood where you run randomly into a field or whatever. I don't know what you call them in Australia. And punch a kangaroo. And uh, and run away we, real quick. I've seen a couple we, of videos. We call that Monday morning, right? That's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, well, let's organize it. We can sell some tickets. You rock up to the office. We go, hey, happy uh, happy Monday. You punched a roo yet? Yeah, punched a roo, mate. Oh, good, good, good. Glad you punched well, the roo. Well, one of my coworkers said, you know, they can kick your chest through your stomach. And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, I don't know. I'm a, I'm a pretty good runner. So mm. he'd have to oh, catch me first. Yeah. Oh, they, yeah. You've seen how fast a roo can... Jump, man! It'll oh, shit. yeah, it'll be on. Time. It'll be on. Maybe a baby king. Half a maybe, second. Maybe a mm. baby. Room. All right, let's get on with this. Um, yeah. So, you know, we've we've been doing this background on the Syrian civil war, and trust me, folks, when I say we are getting close to we are I can the civil it. war. Yeah, we're getting close. It's in the notes. That's how close it is. <laughs> um, but uh, we got a little bit more background to give you first. Don't. Fucking roll your eyes at me That's when right. I say that. Come this back is where they were. If if you know if you want to understand, you need to understand. You need to get the background. And one big piece of the Syria puzzle that we haven't talked about yet is the role of Lebanon and the Lebanese civil war that ran from 1975 to 1990, 91. Depending on oh, when you uh, wrap it up, it, I mean, I remember it. I'm sure you remember it, Ray. Oh, yes. We were oh, around. Yes. It was constant. It was one of those things that just went on forever. Fifteen, sixteen years. Uh, there was constant footage. I remember growing up in the news of oh, yeah, fucking the Lebanese civil war still going on. Um, I mean, like fifteen years. World War Two went for. Five years. World War One went for like what three years, three four years. Four, World yeah. War Two went for four five years. This is going oh, yeah. on well six, maybe thirty nine, forty five. Yeah, five six years. This went on for fifteen sixteen years. It's like uh, it Jeez. was insane. Um, so anyway, we're going to talk about that uh, today, uh, and over the next couple of episodes, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the Suez Crisis and the role that uh, that played. Uh, and the Eisenhower Doctrine, we're going to get back to uh, sort of Hafez al-Assad and his relationship with the US, uh, particularly during Gulf War One. We're going to talk about Bashar al-Assad coming to power. 
we've got a lot of stuff to cover, um, and then we'll get to the Arab Spring at some point. All right, so suit up, people, because we're about to. Well, for us, it's going to be three, four hours. Uh, you get to break it up, but uh, yeah. So just get ready because here it comes. Yeah. Now the state of Greater Lebanon like the rest of this area, was created in 1920 during the French mandate. French came in, as you'll recall. They looked at this whole area that they were given uh, after World War One. the former Ottoman territory sort of split between themselves and the British. And they went, yeah, let's just break all this up. This is too big. It's too big. How do you, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. So they just they carved it up. And... The Lebanon, as it is today, it sits on the coast of the Mediterranean. Uh, if you if you can visualise, if you don't have a map in front of you like I do, <laughs> visualise the uh, sort of the top of Africa, the Mediterranean Sea there. So you've got Egypt, and then if you go around the Mediterranean Sea, sort of if you go east of Egypt, you go up through Israel, then you've got Lebanon, it's on the coast. Then you get a bit of Syria, then you get into Turkey. Um so it's sort of surrounded by Syria and then it sort of juts, the, the southern border of Lebanon juts onto the northern border of Israel. Mm. Now, it was created by France to be a safe haven for the Maronite population of the Mutasarifa of Mount Love Lebanon. That. Yeah, Mutasarifa. Um, that was a one of the administrative units of the Ottoman Empire, like a, a what would you call that? Just a, 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 what, a satrapy for listeners right. of our Alexander the Great podcast, a satrapy. Mutasarifia. If I can just throw something in. Now, supposedly, because here we are talking about two European powers, Britain and France, getting territory. I mean, they're almost, what, awarded it after World War One, or they've awarded themselves because they were the ones involved in the Paris peace talks. But supposedly, the League of Nations gave the mandate to Britain and France. Now, the mandate system was supposed to differ from colonialism, where they pretty much outright take whatever they want. Um, it's supposed to help govern a country as a trustee while the inhabitants learn to stand on their own. And at that point, they will become an independent state. So it certainly it certainly had a very noble aim to it. But as as we're going to see, Britain and France had made a lot of money over centuries um, taking natural resources. So it's not exactly in their DNA to help some other country stand up on its own and, and then just walk away. It's going to be very hard for them. And it's certainly not going to be a clean break. What I found was interesting during right before the um, Paris peace talks, the um, the how do you say it? Is it the Maronite? Maronite, I think, yeah. Maronite Patriarch, Ellis Peter Hoyek, I'm sure I'm saying his name wrong, basically sent a memorandum to the Paris Peace Conference. And he was trying to justify getting all of this territory to be put to be put under them. They're like, you know, we, we've had this famine while y'all had World War I going on. We had this famine that lasted, you know, four years, thousands, you know, people have died, like half of their population died. So we need to extend the land. We need, we need to get more land than you probably want to give us. So that way we can farm the appropriate land. So this won't happen to us again. So these, because of their Christians and they're sending a request to a group of Christians in Europe, it's pretty much going to be answered. And so they're going to get a lot of area that you could argue 
argue that they shouldn't have got, but it's going to include the coastal towns of Beirut, Tripoli, Sidon, and Tyre, and they want the respective hinterlands that come with that. So they're going to get a nice chunk of land um, from this because their fellow Christians in Europe are going to obviously want to favor them over the non-Christians. Yeah, and we should explain why there are Christians in the middle of the Middle East and and what they're doing there. Because I wasn't overly familiar with the Maronites. I'd heard heard of them before, of course, but I, I really didn't know much about how they fit into the whole thing. Which is weird because I spent a lot of my time reading about early Christianity, but they're kind of a little bit late for me. They're fourth century. That's old, man. That's old <laughs> where I'm at. That's oh, it's all over by the fourth century. Or, or they're new kids on the block. You can look at it either way. Step by step, ooh baby, gonna get to you, girl. Step by step. All right, that's enough new kids on the block. I can't <laughs> yeah, even. Yeah, that was. Uh, that's, no, that's no, f- can't stop that. Three seconds, it's more than enough for that Hurl. gag. Um, yeah, the Maronites are an ancient Christian sect that are affiliated with the Church of Rome, the, the Catholics, the Vatican, but they have their own patriarch, their own liturgy, and their own customs. They're named after a, a fourth century monk, St. Maron. Mm-hmm. Mark Maron, uh, Mark Maron's ancestor, I think. Uh, uh, Mark's really left the, the saintliness well behind, but uh, <laughs> yes, he did. Who left Antioch for Syria to lead an ascetic life in the fourth century? He was like, you know what? Fuck all this shit that's going on in Antioch's too crazy. Party town, party central. Antioch was too many temptations. He decided to go out into the middle of nowhere and just live nice, clean, simple life. Now that makes them one of the oldest continuous Christian sects in the world. Wow! And then when Syria was being uh, Arabized, I think that's a word uh, after after uh, the creation of Islam. A few hundred years later, uh, the Maronites moved their HQ to Lebanon, mm-hmm. and they've been there ever since. Now, they were based around an area uh, of the the area of Mount Lebanon, which made that region a sort of a, a Maronite majority. And during yeah. the Ottoman period, they were given a fairly high degree of autonomy. Which, yeah, it is interesting. I mean, the Ottomans, obviously, an Islamic uh, theocracy, kind of, I guess you would call that, um, mm-hmm. allowed allowed this group of Christians to pretty much do their own thing for, for centuries. Um, but as you say, after World War One, when the French were going to figure out how to divvy this area up, the Maronites went to them and said, listen, you know, give us our own region, but we want all of this other land as well. So they ended up getting this whole area of Greater Lebanon, included North Lebanon, South Lebanon, the Bekaa Valley and Beirut, which became the capital of the new state. And uh, even though the, the Christians had been a majority in the Mount Lebanon region, once they were all joined together. They didn't really have a majority anymore. With the the new state, 
Christians were about 51% Christians in total, Maronites being about 30% of the total, and the Muslims made up the other 49%. So it was pretty much an even split, but the Christians, the Maronites in particular, ended up in control of the state, and this is going to be the cause of problems down the track. The flag of this new Greater Lebanon, well, you know, just a bit of a show of thanks, just like uh, Australia's flag is based on the United Kingdom's and America's flag is based on the British East India Company uh, to say thanks for uh, to, to the world's second corporation for creating a country for us. The uh, new Lebanese flag was the French tricolore, uh, with um, a cedar tree in the middle strip, the white. They were like, "Yeah, hey, who wants to who wants to design a flag? Oh, fucking can't be bothered. Let's just take the French one that was here yesterday, put a tree on it, <laughs> put a tree on it, boom, done. That was some the same marketing genius who came up with uh, Saudi Arabia uh, was that, that they brought them in to come up with that." Got a huge fee. It's like $20 million to come yeah. up with that flag. Yeah. Just put a tree on it. Fucking done. I'm out. Outies. Outie you take a 4, picture 000. of the tree. You lick the back of it. You stick it on to the <laughs> flag. On. Boom. Yeah. Yeah. Penny. Yeah. The, I mean, it didn't come up. The tree wasn't the first thing he came up with. Uh, right. You know, the first thing he came up with was like, uh, it was a meerkat. He put a meerkat on there like, nah, <laughs> no. No, it doesn't feel. Meerkat. Mm, He's like, no. he, he, had, he, had, he had options. Like, he, he, right. wasn't, he wasn't a one-trick pony, this guy. He, right. had, uh, he had like 15, just cut out magazines. He cut out little pictures of shit, just Can stuck it on the middle of the French what flag. About what about this one? <laughs> no, they had to be, had to be Syrian. They had to be for them. So anyway. Oh, good point. Um, now, obviously, most Muslims in this greater Lebanon from the get-go were like, what? We, we, so, hold on. We hate your you flag. Know, we hate your flag. The French, you know, jumped in in the first place, and, and, and now the Christians are going to be running the joint. Yeah, and we hate your flag. What? A tree? That's it? That's the best you can do? That's this. not a good start to a state. When the best no. you can do is put a tree on the French flag. Fuck this and shit. And, and you're pissing off roughly 49 to 50% of the population. This shan't end well. Now, the Muslims already believed uh, that the Allies had cheated them after the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we've touched upon, uh, I think, briefly in earlier episodes, the British had promised the Arabs national independence for all of their historical homelands in return for their support during the war, but never really intended to give that to them. And uh, I think we've talked about Lawrence of Arabia before. The depiction in the film isn't quite accurate, um, but if you read T.E. Lawrence's book, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, he's quite clear in that that the Brits from the get-go never really intended to honour their promises to the Arabs about sort of national sovereignty. Uh, They always perceived the Arabs as being a bunch of barbarians riding camels. and uh, yeah. Yeah, they were never going to give them control. Um, And so, of course, after the war, instead of giving them the national independence, they petitioned it, as we've said, with the French and also... 
committed to handing over part of it, namely Palestine, to the Jews. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole other fucking topic that, <laughs> you know, we'll probably get into in a future series on the bullshit filter. But um, And now Lebanon is to be run by Christians. Yeah. Mm. Um, can, can I, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but there was a, a particular part where um, Lebanon does quote unquote get its independence at the end of World War II. I wanted to mention that, but I didn't want to go too far too too quickly. Well, um, yeah, you can touch on that. Sure. Go ahead. Yes. So excited. Okay. This is my <laughs> chance. Okay. So uh, Lebanon was promised its independence. Um, and on November 22nd, 1943, obviously during World War II, that was in a way achieved because free French troops who had invaded Lebanon in 41 to get rid of the Vichy, the French Vichy forces, they, um, they kicked out the Vichy. And in 46, uh, 1946, they did leave. But like you said, the uh, Christians, the Mar. Maronites assumed power over the country and the economy. Now, this, I actually, I respected this. This this shocked me in a pleasant way. The parliament was created in which both the Muslims and the Christians had a set quota of seats. According according to the Constitution, uh, or, or however it was worked out, the president would be a Maronite. The prime minister would be a Sunni Muslim, and the speaker of the of speaker parliament would be a Shia Muslim. So each each group, religious group, gets a very powerful position within the government. As long as you can maintain that one and maintain that position, then theoretically things should be okay. But as as we've said before a billion times, when you have a bunch of Christians come in, take over, control um, this area that clearly should belong to the, the Muslims, it's not going to make everybody happy. But they were trying to work out some kind of deal in this one particular section of the Middle East. Uh, I've seen a lot worse uh, deals. So, so this, this one kind Kind of got me off guard with how how much they were sincerely trying. Yeah, they were trying to create a secular state, and you know we've we've seen that was kind of a popular idea across the Middle East in the 30s, 40s, 50s, with the Ba'ath Party as well in in both Syria and Iraq, mm-hmm. um, and also you know Mossadegh in Iran and all that kind of places. So they were trying to do the same thing, and you know it, it's it sounds uh respectable on paper but in right. practice the 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 Maronites uh were able to control most of the wealth and most of the the political power in the country yeah. uh and the Muslims were sort of second class citizens now i, I can understand the, the 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 Maronites had been there for 1600 years <clears throat> mm mm-hmm. So that's 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 a long fucking time. I mean, yeah. Europeans have only been in Australia for two hundred and fifty years, and you know we treat that like it's uh, an eternity. Uh, white people what? have only been in in the United States, the Americas, for what four hundred odd years. So we think yeah. that's a long time. They've been there for sixteen hundred years. Fair enough that they wanted to maintain their territory. I think the the problem isn't that they wanted to maintain their autonomy in the Mount Lebanon area as they they had a land grab they wanted more area more control more power but uh, in doing so they created this massive region uh, of conflict now the Muslims who lived in this new greater Lebanon state constantly demanded reunification with Syria mm-hmm. which they had felt they had always been part of anyway. 
Uh, and that eventually brought about an armed conflict between the Muslims and the Christians in 1958, when uh, the United Arab Republic was uh, created. I think we've touched upon this briefly before. And uh, the Lebanese Muslims wanted to join it. The Lebanese Christians were strongly opposed to it. And this sort of the first time where the U.S., gets involved in Lebanon. 1958, Ike. Mm. Yeah. Ike Eisenhower. Right. Sorry, President Ike. No, is that what you're going to say? Pres- That's President, President Ike. Ike, please, if you don't mind. Yeah. Please, thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Or, or Pike, as they used to <laughs> P-Ike. I don't know. Fuck, whatever. <laughs> Ike sends in US troops to Lebanon in 1958. Now, you might well ask why... Why is the American why, why is the American president sending troops to Lebanon in 1958? What has Lebanon got to do with America, America's security, American interests in 1958? Didn't Roosevelt and Churchill sign the Atlantic Charter in 1941 mm-hmm. that said, "Hey, we're not going to get involved, self-determination for countries, etc." And we all know that that was worth the paper it was written on, but uh, his justification was something called the Eisenhower Doctrine. American presidents yeah. love to create doctrines for themselves. Can't wait to see the Trump Doctrine. That's going to be a corker. Um, <laughs> no, no you're be- wrong. See, you had the you had Obamacare that helps people. He's going to have the Trump Wall, which doesn't help people. He's going to put his name on the wall. I just know it. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be tremendous. People are going to love it. Um, So the Eisenhower Doctrine, as our uh, token American, do you want to uh, explain the Eisenhower Doctrine, Ramondo? Yes, please. The the, uh, Eisenhower uh, Doctrine um, was issued by President Dwight David Eisenhower on January 5th, 1957, within a special special message to Congress about the situation in the Middle East. And it was approved by Congress March of that year. Now, in this doctrine, a Middle Eastern country could request American uh, economic assistance or aid from U.S. military forces if it felt it was being threatened by armed aggression. Now, Eisenhower singled out the Soviet Union in his doctrine by authorizing the commitment of United States forces to secure and protect the territorial integrity and political independence of such nations, requesting such aid aid against armed aggression from any nation controlled by international communism. Now, the reason he used the term international communism, because it made the doctrine that has his name on it uh, have a much broader approach. Any country that had anything to do with any communism um, that was attacking or threatening or whatever country, they could use uh, the Eisenhower Doctrine to uh, to ask for military and or financial aid from the United States. So if it was even slightly red, pink, whatever, and you're harassing someone, they can they can ask for aid from the most powerful country on the planet. And because Eisenhower feared radical nationalism would would somehow combine with international communism. He was ready and willing to send U.S. troops to the Middle East, but obviously um, under under certain circumstances. Now, getting back to the, uh, to the United States part of, part of this, um, the doctrine would help 
um, regionally, if there was an independent Arab regimes, um, because at this point, Nasser of Egypt is starting to exert a lot of uh, political control because he wants the Middle East to be his sphere of influence. So the Mon- the uh, Monroe, huh, sorry, the Eisenhower Doctrine is not only trying to help countries, it's trying to keep the United the USSR out, but it's also trying to isolate Nasser. So this is one doctrine that has multiple purposes, and he's putting it out there. And again, this is just him saying, if you need help, call on us, especially if they're communi- communist pinko bastards, we will come spend our time, treasure, and blood defending you. Um, yeah, this whole, if, if, uh, the hypocrisy of this is astounding. And, and, you know, we, we, we've talked a lot, fucking a lot on the Cold War show about how the, the Cold War was driven by economic spheres of influence. America wanted the entire world to be in the American capitalist uh, economic sphere of influence, so they could trade mm-hmm. with as many countries as possible because the American economy depended on right. foreign trade because they were producing too much surplus for domestic consumption. They needed to be able to trade with as many countries as possible. The the Soviets, on the other hand, were trying to create their own competing sphere of economic influence. Um, so they could trade for for a variety of reasons, uh, but mostly because they needed uh, they they needed the the resources and they needed to be able to sell stuff to all these other countries. They wanted to be able to uh, do their own thing without having to be part of the capitalist system. They wanted other socialist countries to be able to trade with, uh, and so basically, what Eisenhower's doctrine does is kind of justifies American military intervention in countries. Mm-hmm. But if if the Soviets said, you know, this is still happening today, so if the president of the Ukraine asks for Russian support and, the, and, and Putin goes, all right, well, we'll send in troops, America cries foul. Mm-hmm. But according to the Eisenhower doctrine, if a country asks for American support, then it's just all fine and dandy for America to send in troops. So it's kind of this two-world scenario or two-rule scenario. It's it's all right for America to do it if somebody asks for support, but if a country asks for Soviet or Russian support, then that's right. invalid. That then that's just uh, you know Amer- aggressive Russian military operations. But in this case, uh, he sent in troops to Lebanon. Now, Lebanon wasn't being attacked by any international communist group. They were under it. There was a civil war, an internal civil war between Muslims and Christians. Uh, but the US said, oh, look, there's some wiggle room in there. Like, all you have to do is say, <laughs> you think right. the Muslims are secretly working with the Soviets. Boom, that's enough. There it is. There's their justification. In we go. 
Now, as you indicated, uh, the Eisenhower Doctrine was in part based on uh, the president of Egypt's actions, Gamal Abdel Nasser. Uh, he was the second president of Egypt after they got their independence, supposedly kind of independence from the British. And uh, it was precipitated by the Suez Crisis of 1956, which I want to talk about a little bit. Um, so the Suez Canal, which uh, was sort of an, for people who don't know, it's a like an artificial uh, waterway in Egypt connects the Mediterranean Sea in the north to the Red Sea in the south through the Isthmus. I hate that word. Isthmus. I've never been able to say that properly my entire life. The Isthmus. The fucking narrow piece of land uh, that, that, that sort of bridges Egypt and uh, I guess sort of the Middle East. Um it's incredibly important for trading. It provides a shorter journey between the North Atlantic and the North Indian Ocean. Sure. Going via the Mediterranean and the Red Sea, so you avoid having to go all the way around Africa, basically. Right. It it reduces the journey by about 7,000 kilometres or 4,300 miles. And that's where the sea now, monsters are. Don't forget that. Now, the Suez Canal was owned by the British and the French, now, well, you, can I tell if you're, how, reason, sorry, if you're sorry. a reasonable person, you might be asking, why the fuck did the British and the French <laughs> own this thing if it's sitting in the middle of Egypt? The yes, Ray, you. You, can ex- you can explain how. Cool, thank you. So, the uh, Suez Canal was opened in 1869 after 10 years of work, obviously being financed by the French and the Egyptian governments. However, in 1875, there's um, the Egyptian government is in, in massive debt. It has financial crisis that it's dealing with. So, the Egyptian um, government, the ruler at the time, has to sell his shares in the canal operating company to the British government, which at the time had the Prime Minister of ben- Benjamin Disraeli. So, it goes from uh, Egyptian hands. Benny Day! So, yeah, so the the British are quite happy because they're the ones, probably to a greater degree than anyone else, uh, maybe the French are coming a close second, that have a a huge empire in the Far East and they need to be able to get over there quick smart just in case something happens. And so now having this canal partly being owned by them is just a huge advantage for them that they should not ever want to give up because it would be asinine and suicidal. And as we're going to see, that's exactly how they feel about this. Yeah, you don't think they had anything to do with the Egyptian government going broke in 1875 in the first place. That's (laughs) deep. I like that. Um, And about seven years later, after they bought the Egyptian share of the Suez Canal, the British used political unrest in Egypt as an excuse to invade the country and take control of the entire thing in the first place. They're like, oh, look, you're threatening our Suez Canal. We have to come in. Um, and then they basically took control of the entire country and kept control of it up until after World War II. Um, now, this control that they had of Egypt and the Suez Canal was important uh, not only for trade but also in a military sense. In 1905, again, as listeners to our Cold War show will Recall, the Russians were in a war with Japan, uh, mm. 1905. We've talked about this a lot uh, in recent episodes of the Cold War show. And um, the British at the time refused 
the Russians' access to the canal. They had a fleet stationed in the Baltic. The Japanese had, had launched a surprise attack on Port Arthur, which is on the, the eastern side of Russia. Uh, the uh, surprise attack kind of Pearl Harbor-y 40 years <laughs> earlier. Do uh, they know any other type of attack? Anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, they've read their uh, uh, Sunsa the Japanese yeah. surprise attack they're coming good uh, but the, and the Russians had a had a fleet as I said in the Baltic which is on the west side of Russia they wanted to send that fleet round to the Japanese side to to support the Russian fleet at Port Arthur uh, they wanted to use the canal and the British were like nah don't mm. think so fuck mm. you not because they're uh, allies uh, yes yeah, so you know they had to take the long way round. Um, and that gave the Japanese time to consolidate their position. So, and then in World War One, again, Britain and France closed the canal to non-allied shipping. Ooh. So it was used militarily and politically uh, over and above, you know, purely for for shipping for for commercial, you know, trade. Yeah. Um, and then after World War II, it became a major conduit for oil shipping. In fact, I think about half of the traffic through it after World War II was oil going from the Middle East to the rest of the world. So it was not only incredibly important for a whole variety of reasons, strategic as well as commercial, uh, potentially a huge source of revenue for to whoever owned it because half of the world's oil well, no, half of it, half of the traffic through it was oil. So a large amount of the world's oil, let's say, was was going through the Suez Canal. If I can just add to that a little bit, during World War One, obviously with non-allied ships not being allowed to go through, uh, the Germans and the Ottomans tried to force their way through the canal in February of 1915, which caused the British to commit 100,000 troops to the, to the defense of Egypt for the rest of the war. So now they've, not only do they control it, but they literally control it because they have uh, troops there that can manifest their will. So after World War II, Britain is reassessing its role uh, in the world because obviously, um, along with the Atlantic Charter, like you said, it looks like it's the beginning of the end of the uh, the British Empire. Um, but because of the, like you said, the economic potential of the Middle East, you've got the oil reserves and you've got the geostrategic importance. Um, they're going to, and obviously this with the uh, with the Cold War in the background, this becomes even more important. They really want to hold on to it. They keep the troops there. And also... Um, Britain is really trying to use its influence in Egypt and obviously its influence in Iraq to really control the Middle East region. So they so they have uh, friendly governments in those two countries. They've got Egypt. They've got the canal. They've got the oil coming to them. So even though Britain is suffering, the, the British Empire is suffering a reduction in size after World War II, they're still doing pretty well. And it all hinges on possession of the canal. So they obviously cannot let this go anytime soon. I wouldn't say it was necessarily a friendly relationship with the well, monarch, monarchy right. of Egypt. But <laughs> that, might be, that might have been pushing it a little right. bit. It was a so tensions through guns, yes. Tensions between the British and the Egyptian had been rising for decades, and in 1936 they signed a treaty which granted the British a 20-year lease on the canal in return for removing their troops from Egypt, except for 10,000, which were ostensibly there to protect the canal. 
Right. Always, always have you know. Always good to have a reason to leave ten thousand highly armed and trained troops in somebody yeah. else's country. But after World War Two, there were more anti-Western riots in Egypt, which led to a successful coup to overthrow the monarchy in 1952. A coup, by the way, which was supported by the CIA. That doesn't sound right. Who provided funds and promises of military support. Yeah. Now, based on everything we've covered in the Cold War show and in this show to date, Ray, why would the CIA mm-hmm. uh, support a coup? Now, Atlantic Charter, 1941, self-determination of nations. Right. Why would the CIA provide assistance for uh, a coup in Egypt? Um, well, even though it doesn't sound like it, we're really doing it for their benefit. Because, again... <laughs> again Serious again, answer. Serious answer, please, Ray. Okay, so um, it has to be... It's a zero-sum game. The Middle East, just like the rest of the world, is a z- zero-sum game. And we have to either possess it or one of our allies has to possess it so the Soviet Union cannot come in with their evil ways and take possession. But one of your allies did... Possess it, Britain. Mm-hmm. I don't so, know. Maybe they were they were pissed at him. I don't know. Well, we know from their last show that the the U.S., despite you know waving happily in photographs together, there was uh, you know a deliberate process during and then after World War Two of America dismantling the British Empire and uh, taking uh, it for themselves. We did that to our allies? (laughs) We're assholes. (laughs) Well, you're not alone. Everyone's done it. And, uh, yeah, but even though the British British, uh, had supposedly withdrawn most of their troops except these 10,000, they still had a lot of influence with the, you know, the monarchy there. Um, so the CIA wanted to uh, lessen, put ah. put a friend, put a friendly, put a friendly in power there, right. and that's what they thought they were getting. Didn't turn out that way, but that's this is the first time the CIA had done this. This is even before they overthrew Mossadegh in Iran. Um, they this time they didn't really actively get involved. They just provided funds for the coupers. Is that what, what people who do a coup coupers? It is now. The coors, uh, and, and they promised. Look, you know, if you get into trouble, we'll, we'll, the US will come in and support you. Just all you have to do is say uh, Eisenhower Doctrine, and we'll be there. Boom, say, well, that, hasn't, that hasn't that hasn't been invented yet. Don't worry yeah. about it. We're going to invent it. So he's okay. Um, now, uh, in May of 1953, the uh, US Secretary of State John Foster Dulles the brother of the director of the CIA, Alan Dulles, mm-hmm. um, asked Abdel Nasser to right. join an anti-Soviet alliance. And I sure. like this. Nasser yeah. replied saying that the Soviet Union has never occupied our territory, but the British have been here for 70 years. How can I go to my people and tell them I am disregarding a killer with a pistol 60 miles from me at the Suez Canal to worry about somebody who is holding a knife a 1,000 miles away? Oh, snap. There's no answer for that. 
Well, I think this is interesting, right? So yeah. even that point, the U.S. is this is it's it's the way that the U.S. perceive the difference in the way that they perceive the Soviets as potentially wanting to control these areas in the Middle East versus the British who really did control <laughs> and the French who really did control these areas, <laughs> right? The, the, the British and the French who really did control, either directly or indirectly through proxy governments, you know, monarchies or governments they had, control, they had some sort of influence over, or they had armed troops in the country. That's okay because why? Why is that okay? It, 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 no, if, if, if you're looking at purely on a ethical or moral basis – yeah. Well, they have a huge fucking army in this country, or you know, they've got nasty deals with the dictators because that's what a monarchy is, or you know, a military government. They're dictatorships um, of these countries, and the people are being oppressed. It's got nothing to do with morals or ethics, as far as I can tell. It's about economic sphere of influence. Well, the British and the French were part of America's economic sphere of influence after World War Two. Mm -hmm. um, the Soviets weren't. So from the American perspective, the Soviets are the enemy. Whether or that not is, right. they're actually doing anything, they're no, the, 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 the baddies. Yeah, uh, and, and, and NASA called them on it. Well, fuck, the British have been here for 70 years. they got 10,000 troops in my country right now. Why right. are the Soviets the bad guys? Yeah. Right? Anyway. So, so yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Right, I just want to add to that. So, so you mentioned, um, did you mention in October of 51... Uh, the, the Egyptian government abrogated the Anglo-Egyptian Treaty of 1936. Uh, no, to... but okay. jump in okay. there. Jump okay. in. Yeah. So basically, so the, the Treaty of 1936, the terms which granted Britain a lease on the Suez for another 20, 20 years. So Britain is like, okay, you can abrogate that piece of fucking paper, but I'm not leaving. Um, I have treaty rights. You're breaking a treaty. And obviously I have the military in the Suez Canal. So obviously there's going to be a lot more tension between the British and, and the, uh, and the Egyptians. And that's going to give rise to all these different groups like the, the Muslim Brotherhood and things like that, where there's going to be the, instead of just being pissed in general and cussing the British out, these people are going to start organizing, they're going to start forming, and they're going to actually start taking action, and it's going to give the British uh, a lot of headaches. But even though um, even though America itself is cutting the British at the knees in Egypt, they're not quite done yet. And um, I just want to mention this one thing real quick. So Britain is trying to mend their relationship with the Egyptians, even after the, the July 1952 military coup with the free officer movement, you know, they, um, they overthrow King Farouk. So, so they, they approach the Egyptians again and they say, look, here's what we're going to do. It's, you know, it's like 1953, 1954. We are going to give up British rule of the Sudan and we'll do that by 1956. And in return, Cairo will promise to abandon the Nile, the Nile Valley region. So, um, so this is something again that's good on paper. Um, in October of 1954, Britain and Egypt concluded the agreement of a phased evacuation of British troops from the Suez base, and they agreed to withdraw all their troops within 20 months. Obviously, like you said before, they get to still maintain the base. They have a right to return within seven years. And supposedly, according to this, the Suez Canal Company will revert back to the Egyptian government uh, in November of 1968. So they're laying the groundwork for trying to to peacefully, gradually, slowly give this over to the people who actually live in the country, but it's not going to go down quite that smoothly. 
Exactly. But the British did eventually, under pressure from NASA, remove the troops that remained in June of 1956. Now, I want you to think about something, everyone. Just to take your country, whether it's Australia or the United States, um, and, and obviously difficult if it's England because I'm going to talk about England or the sure. United Kingdom as the example. But imagine your country was being controlled by the United Kingdom up until 1956. Mm-hmm. Uh, had massive amounts of troops there and and was was using that threat. We've talked about uh, gunboat diplomacy, uh, mm-hmm. I think, on the Cold War show, where, you you know, you send your diplomats in with a briefcase and a pen, but there's a <clears throat> flotilla of naval battleships just off the coast to just make sure that it goes well. Well, when you actually have troops in the country, that's uh, the ultimate form of gunboat diplomacy. Hey, we'd like you to uh, agree to these terms on this contract. What? Those troops over there? Oh, ignore them. No, 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 it's got nothing to do with it. Yeah, they're not even paying attention. Just, it's just, it's just you and me here. Just you and me. Don't Those 10,000 guys, ignore that. Um so uh, just imagine that. Like, imagine that you didn't have any genuine democracy or self-determination as a country up until the mid-50s. Like, fucking Don wow. Draper is always right. already working at Sterling Cooper fucking, you know, doing gone. ads for cigarette companies. Banging checks, smoking uh, cigarettes, and, yeah. And, and the British are still controlling the place. Uh, that's only what, 70 years ago, man. Like, it's not a very long time. And we look right. at countries like Egypt and all the problems that they've had and the rise of dictators like Mubarak and then and then the, the, the Arab Spring and Tahir Square and all this kind of stuff and the control still today by the military. <clears throat> it's not surprising when you realise that the British were in control of the place up until 70 years ago. As, as I've mm. talked about, I'm not sure if it was on this show or the other show, Learning how to self-govern has taken every country in the world a long, long time to to work out. You you look at even the major Western democracies, uh, particularly England and the United States, um, it took centuries to try and figure out how how, how democracy would work. And we know it's far from perfect already today. I mean, look at just fucking Theresa May and Trump are in power. Um, But... You know, it works as well as democracies work. Um, it took centuries to kind of figure out how to do that. It, learning how to self-govern and, and put into place systems where there's checks and balances, judicial versus executive, takes mm. takes a long time for that to be bettered down. doesn't help also when, um, you know, the, the, the people that are – put in power or come to power immediately after independence are essentially military dictators in their own right who don't really want a well-functioning democracy. Anyway, so in June 56, the British removed their final troops and the very next month, July 56, NASA nationalised the Suez Canal and closed it to Israeli shipping. Damn. Mm-mm. Now, he offered to pay Britain and France, the shareholders, in full 
based on the value of their shares on the stock market at the close of business. A bit like, people will remember who listened to The Cobble Show, Castro, uh, after they took control of Cuba, 59, they said, hey, listen, we're nationalizing telephone company and, and you know, number of the, the businesses in Cuba that the Americans owned, United Fruit Company. The, um, yes, they may have the bought the rights, the exclusive rights for these businesses from our government in the past, but those governments were corrupt dictatorships. So really, we're invalidating those deals, but we're not animals. We will pay you back in full for the value of the business. Um, this is what NASA said as well. Look, you, you did this deal uh, with the fucking a king, with a monarchy. You know, the people don't recognize the power of uh, a corrupt monarchy. Fuck that deal. But we're terminating the deal, but we will pay you back. We will buy it from you. We're terminating it, but we'll buy it from you. Right. That's, that's, that's not a bad deal. Well, you know, when you have a newly independent country that's been either uh, uh, controlled by the Ottomans or the French or the British for centuries... Uh, to all of a sudden go, you know what, we're, uh, we're, we're taking back control. The people uh, are renegotiating the deals. It's new management, under new management. Each is under new management. All those other old contracts, man, they're up for negotiation. So anyway, uh, yeah. but by taking control of the canal, as I explained earlier, he could seriously impact access to the West, to oil from the Middle East, which had the potential to destroy their economies not to mention the military uh, strategic value of the Suez Canal. So this was not going to go down well in the West. And if I could give a, just a little bit of background uh, to the to the crisis that's just been created, if you think about it, you've almost got like four, at least four different struggles going on all at the same time. You've got, you obviously, you've got the Cold War, the United States and the Soviet Union trying to, you know, influence territory. You've got the uh, anti-colonial Arabs against the uh, remaining imperial powers, Britain and France. You've got the Arab-Israeli dispute, and you've got the different various Arab states trying to get leadership of the Arab world because um, they all want to be the big man in their part of the world. You can't blame them because everybody else has been playing the game. Why shouldn't they? And during this time, uh, there's a feud going on between Nasser and the, and the Prime Minister of Iraq, Nuri El Said, um, for Arab leadership. In fact, Nasser's got Cairo Radio calling for the overthrow of the government in Baghdad because clearly Nasser wants everybody else to be destabilized or weakened so he can have the entire Middle East as, as far as possible to be his sphere of, sphere of influence. So, um, so, so in comes the United States and they're trying to set up, they're trying to calm the situation now. They want to set up because again, if you ask the Americans anything, what's today, what colors the sky, whatever, what's your daughter's middle name? The only thing they're going to say is communism bad. We have to defeat it because they cannot see anything else. So the United States comes in roughly around this time and they say, we want to set up the Middle East defense organization to keep uh, the Soviet Union out. And they talk to NASA about it. And again, Again, but like you said before, he doesn't give a crap about uh, Soviet Union. All he cares about is Israel. That is his enemy. And he's trying to make a lot of anti-Western statements to, dr to drum up support, to get a lot of sympathy, to get the people all over the Middle East on his side. And so um, 
Again, the locals, they don't like the, the British and the French. They don't like them being there. Um, the United States wants to build Egypt up as the center of this Middle Eastern defense organization, but they're having trouble with Nasir because he doesn't want to commit really to one side or the other. And he's hoping um, that they can play these two off of each other. And the Americans just cannot understand this because they're hoping the fear of the USSR will bring all the Arab countries together. And not only that, but also hopefully see them make a deal, make some kind of peace treaty with Israel. But that's not going to happen because as far as the Middle East is concerned, they don't give a crap about what's going on between the United States and the, and the Soviet Union. They just care about what's going on locally. And I, I like the part where United States offered Nasser $3 million to join the Middle East Defense Organization. Don't get me wrong. He took the money, but he didn't join the organization. <laughs> he said, yeah, I'll tell you, I'll cash that. Ching. But he, but he keeps the money. And what he wants to do is he wants to have Egypt be the dominant power in the Middle East, and then it will join with the United States as an equal partner against the Soviet Union. And of everything that we've said here on this series and everything we've said on the uh, the Cold War show, you know that America, there's just no way they're going to allow that to happen. You can join us, but you will be the junior, junior, junior partner because we're the freaking United States. So America starts considering its other options. So it looks at some countries to the north of Egypt. You know, they're looking at Turkey, Iran, Pakistan, and they're still trying to get a a peace between the Arabs and the Israelis so everybody can calm the heck down and focus on the real enemy, which is Moscow. But that's not happening. But again, they're able to get the Baghdad Pact, which is a bunch of um, countries coming together, but it also includes the United Kingdom. And again, they're just trying to build up this bulwark against the Soviet Union. But again, everybody in the area, all they care about is getting either money from the United States or seeing who's going to dominate in the Middle East. So everybody's got their own reasons for trying to make various moves. But again, what it comes down to is that the local people don't, they don't trust Britain. They don't trust France and they don't give a crap about all the uh, hatred and fear that America is spewing about the Soviet Union because all they can see is Israel, its creation. They've had land taken away from them. We, they had what a hundred thousand Lebanon, Lebanon, so many refugees get kicked out of the country. So these people want to wipe out Israel, put everybody Palestine. back. In, Palestine. Thank you. I'm sorry. I apologize. And um, trying to put everything back the way it was before the Western powers screwed it all up. So the Americans have one view. The British have another view. The, the French are trying to hold on to their position, possessions in North Africa. Soviets have their view. And everybody in the Middle East has got their own view. And it's all different. And the United States is trying to strangle everybody to try to rope everybody in and make them do what they want. And they simply cannot because everybody is now trying to be the the master of their own domain and it's driving the Americans and the British crazy. But are you still master of your domain? I am king of the county. You? Lord of the manor. I'm queen of the castle. I'm out. I'm out. Okay. <laughs> um, <clears throat> now, so, NASA taken the Suez Canal, uh, Britain and France have a little secret tete-a-tete with their friends in Israel. And they decide amongst them to start a war with Egypt, take control of the canal and overthrow NASA's government. Now, we should point out that Israel at this point 
is what, like eight years old? <laughs> it's been around since like 48. It's a right. kid, 47, yeah. 48. You know, it's not even 10 years old, Israel. And it's gone, a war? Fuck yes. Oh, <laughs> I'm in. Fuck yeah. Like, let's do this shit, man. <laughs> don't like those Egyptians. You know what? The Arabs already don't like us. What can we do to make them not like us more? <laughs> Start a fucking war with them. Oh, that's the way to that's the way to handle things. You know what a you know what a mature country does is it starts fucking wars with its neighbors. That's that's how you establish long lasting peaceful relationships. And Israel goes, you know what? We'll go in first. Fuck them. <laughs> well, to be fair, I mean the the Egyptians had probably been. Uh, supporting, sponsoring the oh, Fedayeen, some attacks on Israel. Yes. But Israel yes. just takes it up a notch here. But as you say, <laughs> the secret plan is Britain and France. It's not, it's not a good look if Britain and France just fucking launch an illegal <laughs> right. attack. Fuck the United Nations and the Security Council, which, you know, they just set up 10 years ago <laughs> to, to make sure that this shit doesn't happen. Security Council was set up to stop people by the fucking two of the permanent members of the Security Council, I will point out, Britain and France. <laughs> Stalin was like, uh, Stalin was like, what guy? I do not think the French deserve a seat on fucking anything because they gave in as soon as Hitler looked at them. And yeah. uh, Roosevelt and Churchill were like, no, 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 the French, man, the French are good. Yeah. Here's, here's, here's why the French are good. So, <clears throat> yeah, not a good look if Britain and France just go in and fucking invade. They're going to have a long, hard time explaining that. But if Israel starts a war uh-huh. with Egypt, I mean, no one can complain about that because the Israelis just need to go, hey, Holocaust, and they go, oh, shit, yeah, sorry, okay. Um, uh, and then Britain and France, this is the plan. Britain and France would go, oh, shit. Oh, there's a war. We better go in and protect the Suez Canal. Yeah. Because it's really, really important. So that was their way of trying, hoping no one would notice. (laughs) That was their deep plan. Yeah, that was starting a war. Look, just tell tell the Jews to tell the Jews to go in first. We'll come in afterwards, and we can blame it on the Jews. Okay, everyone always blames everything on the Jews anyway. So, like, no one's going to notice. Yeah, Holocaust, Holocaust. <laughs> oh, I just want to mention real quick: the Prime Minister of Britain, Anthony mm-hmm. Eden, was hosting mm-hmm. a dinner for King Faisal II of Iraq and his Prime Minister Nuri Al Said when they learned about the canal being had been nationalized. Both men unequivocally advised Eden to quote hit Nasser hard, hit him soon, and hit him by yourself. As in, they weren't going to be a part of it because that would piss off their people. But the point is, they, they, they knew that this entire area could become unraveled, so the British needed to go in there. But the, the British opposition party says, no, 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 you will be violating the UN Charter. You know, the thing you just set up, and if, if the war goes badly, it's a bunch of our guys getting killed and no one else. And that's when the British go to the French and they go to Israel and say, hey, let's do this together. Let's tag team it. But I can just imagine these three men having dinner. Oh, oh by the way, um, that thing that you owned, that, you know, all the oil and your ships getting through, it now belongs to Egypt. I mean, that must have just ruined the rest of the evening. Yeah, hidden by yourself, I think, was just taking unilateral action. Don't worry about the United Nations. Just go in. Just just Knock do it. it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. 
So a classic strategy, uh, but it massively backfired. Uh, no one was fooled for a second about what was going on. There was international condemnation both for, well, for all three parties, including from the US, which is mm-hmm. in, a, in a current era kind of surprising because anything Israel does now, America goes, oh, no, that's fine. You can yeah. fucking do whatever you want. They have carte blanche these days. But back in the mid-50s, it wasn't that way. The U.S.-Israel relationship was still in its very early stages back then, but that changed, as we'll see over time. Now, Anthony Eden, British PM, as you said, um, and, and listeners to our Cold War show will recognize the name from the Yalta Conference. I think mm-hmm. he was the British Foreign Minister back during right. the Yalta Conference. Uh, he lost his job as no. a result of the uproar over this. The UN forced Britain, France, and Israel to withdraw their troops. Anyway, this is just a quick background to explain the circumstances under which the Eisenhower Doctrine came into being, uh, because the collapse of British and French influence in the Middle East after this, particularly when their own countries said, oh, shit, yeah, we got caught doing that. That wasn't, that's no good. Uh, we can't we can't do that again. We better just keep our nose clean in the Middle East for a while. Uh, the U.S. was worried that it would become open to Soviet influence and funding, and in fact, it already was. NASA had already done a deal to buy weapons from the Soviets. Right now, up until this time, the U.S. along with the U.K. and France had a policy of limiting arms sales to countries in the region to try and prevent any arms struggle between the countries, uh, partly because they didn't want them to attack Israel, Mm -hmm. partly also because they didn't want them to unify again. Um, As you've pointed out before, there was a battle between Egypt and Iraq, also Saudi Arabia, also Iran. They they all wanted to, and and Syria, they all wanted to be the the, the centre of pan-Arabic nationhood at this period. Right. Keep in mind that for, for these people, this was, you know, they, they still remembered when all of this was the Persian Empire 2,000 years ago. This yeah. was all this was all one big fucking empire. And then Alexander came along and it got broken up after, after the, the War of the Successes, as we're currently talking about on our Alexander show with the, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies, etc. cetera. Uh, then it was unified under the Romans, uh, and then, you know, kind of unified under the Ottomans for centuries. It was all one big fucking empire. And they're like, well, we're, we were one big people. And, and if we could reunify ourselves again, mm. these borders that were artificially created by a bunch of fucking European imperialists, if we could reunify ourselves again, particularly now that oil's a big fucking deal and we've got some <laughs> money... We never used to have anything. We had Medina and Mecca. That was it. There was nothing else going on. Right. Although Egypt was pretty wealthy back in the day and, and, and you know various parts of Persia were wealthy back in the, the olden times. But now they have oil. Now, it's, if, we can, if we can unify, right. we can hold our own, uh, as you said before, equal partners. We can, we can stand up with the Americans and the That's British right. and the Soviets and go, well, give us an equal fucking seat at the table. Where's our seat on the fucking <laughs> Security Council? Hey? Yeah. Where's the Arab seat? Let's have a look at the names on the, the permanent members of the Security Council, shall we? 
United States, <laughs> United Kingdom, France, Soviet Union, fucking China. Where where is the Arab? Uh, you know, are we not men? Yeah. Uh, if you cut me, do I not bleed? Oh no, hold on, that was a Jew who said that in Shakespeare. <laughs> we better not. Yeah. Then you not get stoned by the local crowd. <laughs> yeah, can't use lines from Jews. Um, but you know, seriously, they. I mean, yeah. and this makes a lot of sense to me, right? Uh, yeah, fuck it out. They, they they wanted to reunify, but there was they tried it with the UAR and you know this all this pan Arabic right. stuff, but. As we've talked about in previous episodes, a lot of people went to a lot of extreme lengths, Kissinger, etc., to make sure that they remained divided and conquered. And, and Israel became a key pillar in that strategy. Keep Israel strong so they're all fighting Israel. Um, and then, you know, it's going to be harder for them to, to unify. And also, you know, keep sectarian conflicts going inside of all of these countries between the Sunni and the Shia. Uh, and the Kurds and the Druze and the Christians right. in Lebanon. Um, anyway, yeah. so getting back to the arms deal, there, there was a thing in, uh, called the Tripartite Declaration in 1950, US, UK and France, where they said, listen, we're going to limit the amount of weapons that we sell to these countries in the Middle East. But NASA went to the Soviets and <laughs> said, hey, you sell me weapons? And the Soviets were like, fuck yeah, dude, we'll sell you weapons. How much do you need? Um, this is, you know, Stalin is dead. Uh, just about the time NASA comes to power, Stalin dies in 53, obviously. Khrushchev takes over. He's like, yeah, man, you want you want the weapons? I sell you weapons. It's all good. How much do you want? You show me you, if your cash is good, we got weapons to sell. So um, this is obviously increasing uh, the U.S.'s concerns here. They... Uh, 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 are already the, the 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 Egyptians sorry already doing deals with the Soviets and in the lead up to the Suez War, uh, France was supplying Israel with weapons. So one of the Shit. signatories yeah. to the Tripartite Declaration uh, had already broken it. So it was kind of defunct, and from that point onwards, it becomes pretty much an all out. Uh, to weaponize these countries as much as possible, uh, particularly as we saw in one of the recent, uh, earlier episodes, you get up into uh, the oil crisis, the OPEC crisis, twenty years later, and the US basically just says to the Saudis, "We will sell you as much as you <laughs> fucking want, no questions asked, my friends." Yeah, exactly. I, I just want to add on to that. There should have been a quote from the Middle East saying, "You know, if we can." Unify, and we we can control the oil, and we can control all the recess resources in the land. You know, our oil is the lube that keeps your party going. I mean, that should have been their slogan. But anyway, I just wanted to mention something about the war because I found it so funny. So the British are moving troops around, the French are moving troops around, the Israelis are moving troops around, and the Americans have this these high altitude flying planes that are going. The SR seventy one, I think it, I think it was. I don't know if that was the plane that was there yet. I'm trying to remember what year that kicked in, but. Anyway, so they're flying over all these areas, and they can see all the movements that these that these uh, three antagonistic countries are making. And in these three countries, agree we have to grab control of the Suez Canal, and we have to remove President Nasser from power. I mean, he has just got to go. He is causing way too many way too too many uh, problems for us. And I thought it was interesting that you you mentioned that um, even though these three countries move in, they kick the crap out of the Egyptian military pretty quickly. Because it's a war zone, the canal is now useless. And when you combine that with pressure from the United States, and I was trying to figure out exactly how does one country 
pressure its ally, another country, into pulling out of a war. But what happened was Eisenhower threatened to sell the U.S. government's pound sterling bonds. So unless the Britain just happened to have enough money to cover that, obviously their uh, their currency would have suffered accordingly. So Eisenhower was not playing when he said, get the hell out of there. The Suez Canal was closed from October of 56 to March of 57. And as this is a land, uh, as a money-making scheme, obviously that's a very long time, but it does work. The countries have to pull out. They're completely humiliated. Um, their, their, their standing in the, um, and the area has shrunk significantly. They're not going to be able to launch any other tax in the future after this humiliating loss, which means the United States is now going to have to be the ones to kick in the military if something goes wrong, because the French and the British have just been pretty much told, don't you ever go in there, at least in the immediate future. So America has truly committed itself to protecting this place. And if, if armed troops have to go in, there's a chance that they're going to have to be United States troops. So Eisenhower won in the short term, but he committed the United States for a very long time in the Middle East. Indeed. And we're seeing the ramifications of that through to this very day. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. Well, let's uh, stop this one here. We're going to keep going in the next episode with the Lebanese Civil War. We had to take a little detour there to talk about the Eisenhower Doctrine, uh, the American justification for getting involved in the Middle East. I want to read a review. Uh, this one is from Andrew I Fall A Lot. Um, this is the perfect format for a Cam and Ray podcast, United States, Andrew I Fall A Lot. I'm sure he's written reviews for us before. Thank you, Andrew. Mm-hmm. says, if you're familiar with the other Cam and Ray podcasts, the BS filter will feel very familiar, and that is a good thing. I feel like this is going to be the perfect format in order for the guys to expound their opinions while giving a good historical foundation. Since they don't have to stick to a single subject, they can explore any topic they want Cam and Ray style. So if you like great historical knowledge, strong opinions, 80s music out of nowhere, and jokes about man-on-man sex in Las Vegas, you'll love this. The only suggestion I have is to bring back the negative reviews for this. The opinions expressed in this podcast are sure to piss off your average patriotic American, so the entertaining reads and dissents of the negative reviews will be highly entertaining, just like back in the Queen of Bithynia days. <laughs> yeah, if we if we had any, I would read them out. Um, but so far, no negative reviews. You know I love to read a good negative review, Andrew. I fall a lot. Send us an email uh, to whatever the fuck the email address is for the show. <laughs> if you can work it out, I can't remember. Do you remember? Email at thebullshitfilter.com. Just send us an email to any one of our email addresses. Pick one. By the way, and give us your address again, because I think we've probably sent you something before. We'll send you a Bullshit Filter coffee mug, Andrew. But uh, just tell us. Folks, when you're sending us these emails, you've got to tell us. We do a lot of fucking podcasts. Just go, hey, thanks for reading my review. Send me the mug. We're always like... Well, we got to follow up email. Which, yeah, it's like people people who send me emails going, "Oh, uh, I'd like a student subscription to the show." Right? Okay, which show? (laughs) Or can you can you reset my login for the podcast? (laughs) Maybe. Yes. Yes, I can. Which Uh, I've lost my login details. Yeah. Anyway, 
Just real quick, and this is not a threat. Um, some of the mugs that I have created and sent off, I get them, and they just don't work. Um, if you ask for a mug because of your review, but you don't tell us which show it is, you might end up getting one of those just because I'm trying to get rid of them. Again, that's not a threat, but it is. So please tell us which show so we can take care of it all in one email. Peace.